We're now in our last month of preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and so I would ask you to take your Bible and turn there. We'll finish out this series the last Sunday of this month. If you're unfamiliar with where Ecclesiastes is in your Bible, just uh, take a Bible. There should be one uh, under one of the seats near you if you didn't bring one with you. Uh, you can also open up an app on your phone. Uh, but if you have a paper Bible uh, and you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, just let it fall open in the middle and you'll be really close. Maybe you followed to Psalms or Proverbs. It's a little bit after those. Maybe you came to Song of Solomon or Isaiah. It's a little bit before those. But Ecclesiastes is basically right in the heart of your Bible. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, and we'll be in chapter 9 and chapter 10 today, and the small numbers are the verses. So we'll be looking at chapter 9, verse 13, through chapter 10, verse 20. And uh, Ecclesiastes is what we call one of the wisdom books of the Bible, along with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon. And this passage today is specifically about wisdom and foolishness. And so we're going to read a lengthy passage in a few minutes here few moments, really, uh, about wisdom and foolishness and uh, what those mean is essentially what we'll be talking about today and how they, uh, how they reveal themselves in our lives. And so the, the title of this, of this sermon is Wisdom is Better. That's a title I chose several months ago for this passage. If I were going to subtitle it, it would be How to Live in a World of Fools and Folly. How do we as Christians live in a wise way when it seems everybody around us is living in a foolish way. And so that's what you can have in mind as we read chapter 9, verse 13, through the entirety of chapter 10. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest." There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were in error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. Though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? 
The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. There are so many examples of outrageous foolishness in our society that I had a really hard time knowing which story to start with today. Somebody just give one snippet of a, a small story. Really, I mean, it was a significant story for some people from about 10 years ago. And essentially, it shows the foolishness of opening your mouth when you should just keep it shut. And all of us have been there and done that and seen that in living color in our own lives. But about a decade ago, a comedian and a very influential person was also a spokesperson for a, uh, an insurance company. And about a decade ago, there was a tsunami in Japan that put thousands of lives and thousands of, you know, countless homes in danger. And this bright person put on Twitter, you know, in Japan, they do things a funny way. They don't go to the beach. They bring the beach to them. You know, sure, I got, you know, thousands of retweets on Twitter because it's hilarious or so he thought and he lost his job over it. Uh, Aflac, I believe, was the company that employed him and used him as a spokesperson, and they said, no thanks, we don't need any of this garbage. And over, you know, a three-line tweet maybe, didn't even use probably the maximum capacity of characters he could have used, he lost his job, and he lost respect, and he may have lost friendships, all because of what probably took him 30 seconds to think of, and to type out, and hit post. And you see the foolishness in something that small, that affects so many people and affects his life in such a tremendous way and probably affected the way he provided for his family. But boy, do we ever do dumb things to ourselves. Do we ever gravitate toward foolishness instead of gravitating toward wisdom? It's like, you know, when you're standing on a, on a steep roof, the water is definitely going to run one way and it's running toward foolishness. That's what our hearts are like. Our hearts don't run toward wisdom. It takes effort to move toward wisdom. It takes no effort to be a fool and walk in foolishness. Our passage today describes what it's like to live in a world filled with fools and folly. And what this passage urges us to do is to pursue a life of God-centered and God-pleasing and God-given wisdom. Wisdom comes from God, so seek wisdom from Him. In a world filled with fools and folly, pursue a life of God-given wisdom. This passage is divided into two parts, and maybe your, your Bible has a variety of paragraph markers in it, as mine does, but the reason I'm saying it's divided in two parts is because if you look at verse 13, chapter 9, verse 13, in chapter 10, verse 5, you see a lot of repetition there. In chapter 9, verse 13, it says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And then in chapter 10, verse 5, there is an evil that I, that I have seen, there's that phrase again, under the sun. And there's that phrase again. So, taking those as the dividing markers, we're going to see two truths in this passage before us today about how to live in a world filled with fools 
and their folly. And so the first is in verses 9, 13 through 10, 4. And the wisdom for us here is to remember that wisdom is beneficial even if unappreciated. Remember that wisdom is beneficial even if it's unappreciated. And Solomon starts off here with a story of wisdom that goes unappreciated. And he's specifically talking about a a great king. So maybe in Bible times, think of someone like Nebuchadnezzar or someone who has a huge army behind him coming to a small little town or city that has really no hope against the military might that, let's again, let's just say Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't actually describe a, a story that seems like it's from the Bible itself, but some story that he saw in his lifetime, and he said, this, this example influenced me in a powerful way. That's what he means when he says that this, this seemed great to me. This really struck me. It struck a chord with me. So he sees this great, powerful army come against a small army, and you would think, this guy's got no chance. He's a goner. It's like a duck sitting on a pond, and there are all these hunters ready to shoot at him. He's a goner. There's no way. So maybe we can put this in, uh, in sports terms. And I know college football starts in the next few weeks here. I assume teams are practicing across the country, even today most likely. And, you know, over the last 15 years, the school that you're trying to compete with is Alabama. Whether you like it or not, I personally don't. Alabama is the team that you're marking yourself against. We're ready to win the national championship when we think we can beat Alabama. And then you take, let's just say, Wheaton College. Nearby, you know, 30, 35 minutes away from our building, They probably have a couple thousand students at their school, which means they probably have like less than 100 guys that are able to play football for them. And they're generally not going to win anything. Even if they win their division of Division Three or whatever they play in, they're not ever going to even compete against a Division Two team because of the number of students they have trying out and the quality of those students who play for them. Well, let's assume that because Alabama literally schedules teams to play against them for millions of dollars, Alabama says, we'll give you $2 million if you'll come and play us. We just need teams to play to beat up on. That's what they do. Like, that is actually a fact. Let's say that Wheaton College accepts that invitation and says, sure, we'll come to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and we'll play against you. Who's going to raise your hand and say, I think Wheaton College is going to beat Alabama? No one would think that. Well, let's assume that they go in there and they have this wise, older, assistant, let's say, outside linebackers coach who just sees through Alabama's game plan. And immediately he goes up to the head coach and says, if we do this over and over again, we're going to win. And the coach says, yeah, right. No, let's try it. Let's see if we can do it. And somehow, by some means, instead of losing 80 to 7 like they probably would, they squeak out like a 13, you know, a 14 to 13 win. Somehow Wheaton College does this, and it's the first story on Sports Center on ESPN, and it makes national headlines. How did they do this? Somehow they came through and they won, and the head coach never talks about that outside linebackers coach who told him this is the secret to beating Alabama today. And he just kind of rides off in the sunset. He never gets any credit for it. That's what this passage is describing. Huge army is Alabama. The small city is Wheaton College, and there's somebody in that small city who can see through how to beat them. And what Solomon tells us in, for instance, verse 16, wisdom is better than might. If you can see through how to break through that, that, that difficult line, wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. 
He never gets his day in the sun. He's never appreciated. His wisdom is forgotten. And what Solomon says is, that happens all the time. Wisdom is valuable, but it's generally unappreciated. It's generally forgotten and not appreciated. So wisdom is powerful, even if it is vulnerable. It's easily overlooked, as in the case of verses 13 through 17, this little story about somebody who saved the day against the bigger, better army, and he was never remembered afterwards. So wisdom is easily overlooked. And it's easily unappreciated. It's also easily ruined. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. It's essentially what he just said the verse before and in the story before. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. You'll survive if you have wisdom, even if it's a big, bad army coming against you. But one sinner destroys much good. It doesn't take much to ruin a whole lot of wisdom. And he uses a little picture that would have been very familiar, would have been very familiar to this uh, ancient Near East culture where he talks about perfume that has a couple dead flies in it. Maybe the perfume smells amazing. You've got a big you know, flask of this perfume and it would be very expensive, but one or two or three dead flies, I mean, this big, fall into that perfume and can't get out and they die and now all of a sudden the perfume is ruined. And you have to throw the whole batch away. It reminds me of when I worked at Starbucks about eight or ten years ago in New Jersey, uh, one day I opened a gallon of milk and there was a fly in that gallon of milk. Just so you know, when you go to Starbucks, there are these opportunities for you. And um, I looked in that pitcher and I assumed that it had just gotten in there and someone put the lid on and it was just enough time to, you know, the the fly had nowhere to go, so he just died in the milk. What are you going to do with a whole gallon of milk? We had to throw the whole thing out. Just as you know, that's what we did. Uh, hopefully you can feel better about yourself when you go to Starbucks now. But, I mean, imagine if, if I came out with a, a whole gallon of milk and just poured it on the floor right here. It would take several feet of space here as the milk just runs all over. And the whole thing's gone because of a fly, you know, a quarter of an inch tall, if you want, even if that tall. And the whole thing's a waste because of that one fly. What Solomon is saying is, You could have somebody who's really wise. You can even have a culture of wisdom where you have lots of wise people around you. Just a teensy bit of foolishness will ruin the whole deal. And so what I would ask or urge you to do is to surround yourself with wise people so that then they can counteract the flies in your life, the fly in the ointment in your life. And, and yes, you're going to continue to hear foolishness and see foolishness and have foolishness come out of your own heart. But what the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs tells us is that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Surround yourself with godly parents and godly friends and godly elders and godly fellow church members who want the best for you and let them speak truth to you over and over again so that that one little annoying fly, so to speak, the person who doesn't really get it and keeps giving you bad counsel, is thwarted and is, is pushed away and is refused. Wisdom is powerful, even though it's vulnerable to being easily ruined by something as small as a fly. So, remember, wisdom is beneficial, even if it's unappreciated. And we see in verses 13 through chapter 10, verse 1, that wisdom is powerful. 
And in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 10, wisdom reveals itself in simple, everyday situations. So what he does here is gives three little statements about wisdom. And basically, he says in verse 2, you can, that wisdom reveals itself by what you pursue. You can tell if somebody is wise by what they pursue with their lives. So verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. What I would say is if you are looking to say Republican politics are the very best, here's your verse for you. That's what it sounds like, right? And we would say, no, read the verse in context. This isn't saying anything about right-wing politics versus left-wing politics. It's simply saying a wise person and a foolish person diverge paths. They walk very different roads. And perhaps he's saying that a wise man's heart inclines him to righteousness, to the right as in righteousness. That's fine, but it still has nothing to do with politics. So don't, you know, again, it's very easy for us to try and find a verse that supports what we want it to say. You can make a verse say anything you want it to say if you try really hard, and people do. But I would just say this verse has nothing about that. It simply says you can, uh, that wisdom reveals itself by what you pursue. Are you pursuing what is right or are you pursuing what is wrong? Verse 3 says wisdom reveals itself by how you live. Even when the fool walks on the road, he's going about his everyday life, he lacks sense and he says to everyone that he is a fool. And what I mean by that is, or what, what Solomon means is you can't hide what you really are. It's like that story in Winnie the Pooh, in the original non-Disneyfied version of Winnie the Pooh, where Winnie wants to get up in a tree that's full of a beehive. And he says, if I get to that beehive, I'm going to get honey. Well, how am I going to get up to that hive that's at the top of this tree? And so he tells Christopher Robin, I need a balloon. I need either a green balloon that makes it look like a tree or a blue balloon that makes it look like the sky. And I'll hold on to that balloon. Well, then I have to deal with myself too. So I'm going to go roll around in mud, which will make it look like I'm a rain cloud. And so Christopher Robin says, yeah, definitely use the blue balloon then so that you look like you're holding, you know, you're just part of the sky and you're a black rain cloud. Well, then he's up there in the air and it works perfectly. But then the mud starts to drip off of Winnie the Pooh. And of course, Winnie the Pooh says, clearly these are the wrong kinds of bees. <laughs> you know, these, these are not, you know, getting fooled easily enough. The problem was he couldn't hide what he really was. The bees would look at him and say, there's a bee trying to get our honey. Stuffed bee at that. And uh, when he can try all day long to disguise himself, but he can't actually hide what he really is. And it's the same way with our foolish hearts. You can try all day long to hide that you are a fool, but it will show itself one way or another. And that's what verse, two, what verse 3 is telling us. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he tells everyone, that he is a fool. And so we're reminded that Jesus himself said, well, you know people by their fruits, by what they do, by how they live, by the decisions that they make. And that's the same point that Solomon is making here. Verse 4 then says you can also, that wisdom also reveals itself by how you respond. Wisdom reveals itself by how you respond. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. I hope when you read that, you hear the parallel to Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath. Boy, when you are in the heat of the moment with your spouse or with your child or with your boss or a fellow coworker, what's the path to victory? Lay down your life and give a soft answer. 
instead of saying, I'm going to use my biggest hammer. She's using a big hammer. I'm going to use a bigger hammer and prove that I'm right. No. Use a soft answer. Turn away wrath. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Boy, how fast. It's like a balloon again. How fast a balloon can deflate if someone just doesn't engage and says, okay, I'm just going to take a step back. I'm going to say something calm. I'm not going to provoke this person anymore. I'm just going to walk away, so to speak, even though he says, don't walk away. Don't leave your place. He's saying, you can hold your ground, but give a soft answer instead of a crazy one. A soft answer turns away wrath. So wisdom reveals itself in simple, everyday situations. What you pursue, how you live, how you respond. Remember that wisdom is beneficial even though it is unappreciated. And I'm getting that that sense that it's unappreciated, especially from verses uh, 16 through 18. Your your wisdom is going to be thrown away. They're never going to remember that you were wise. But ultimately, we're not seeking to win the world's approval. We're seeking to live in wisdom and walk wisely because that brings God most glory. So the first half of our passage here is remember wisdom is beneficial even if it's unappreciated. And secondly, from chapter 10, verse 5, this next division where he says, I've seen something under the sun. Remember, folly is destructive even if it's initially rewarded. So it's the exact opposite. Wisdom might be forgotten. Foolishness might get the prize, might be appreciated and valued and upheld as monumentally important. And Solomon says, just keep your wits about you and remember that foolishness will destroy you. And that makes us ask the question, what is a fool? And biblically speaking, it's not just the person who doesn't know how to you know, add two plus two. It's not just the kind of person who doesn't know how to use the newest electronic device. It's not just the person who kind of consistently makes bad decisions, you know, unwise decisions. I'm just going to keep buying one car after another, and, and you know, you just make some kind of decision that, that is going to hurt you in the long run. That's not really what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about a fool. Foolishness is what someone does when they hate God and when they hate God's ways, and when they hate God's people. That's what a fool is. Someone who refuses God, and and in Psalm 2 language, throws his fist up in the air and says, I hate God. I want nothing to do with his control over my life, which is why in that passage he says, let us break these bonds from off of our hands. We want nothing to do with God and his rule. That's what a fool is in the Bible. And so remember that foolishness is destructive even if it's initially rewarded, as it is here in verses 5 through 7. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun. Folly is set in many high places. Did you know that? Foolish people get elected to really important positions. <laughs> That's not good, but boy, can we ever attest to that throughout human history. Folly is set in many high places and you would think the rich person, the person who has worked really hard, has gone to school for a really long time and earned all the degrees you could possibly get, and he's saved his money, and he's tried to you know, take care of his family well, that person, he says, is sitting in a low place. He's not elevated. He's not appreciated. He's not recognized. And he gives another example of this. He says, I've seen slaves on horses, people that you would not expect to be appreciated. So maybe they're on a parade. 
riding through the streets on a horse. You think, what did that guy do to deserve that? And he's using a slave here as a parallel to the foolish person in verse 6. And princes, people who you would expect to be riding on horses through a parade in the ancient Near East, they're walking on the ground like slaves. There's been a a role reversal here. The world has been turned upside down. And that often happens in the Bible. There are entire studies about how the Bible shows that the world is, is often turned upside down. But what we see is that God in his wisdom redemptively reverses what we would expect as well. And so there's a, there's a book um, by a guy named Greg Beale about the redemptive reversals in the Bible. And it's just this idea that you would expect someone like Jesus, who's not famous, to do nothing with his life. But actually, he's the one who came to save the world. And there's these reversals throughout the Bible. Here's just a, a bad example of the reversals that we experience in life. You see someone who should not be appreciated getting all the credit and someone who should be appreciated and remembered being forgotten. So folly is destructive, even if it's initially rewarded. How does folly destroy someone? How does foolishness destroy our lives? Verses uh, 8 through 11, the fool is destroyed by accidents. Now what you realize when we read these verses again in a moment is that these aren't just describing things that happen to fools. They can happen to wise people as well. But the difference is that wise people can prepare themselves for when these accidents will come and can respond to these situations when they come. So he lays out four different everyday kind of accidents that could happen to anybody doing mundane tasks. So in verse 8, he describes someone who digs a pit and he will fall into it. Why would you dig a pit in the ancient Near East? Probably to try and catch an animal. You know? Uh, dig a pit and cover it up with sticks and leaves and things. It looks like he's just walking along and then he'll, he'll fall in and you've, you've captured dinner, so to speak. Well, then you accidentally fall in yourself. That's not good. Verse 8 goes on to say, A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Did you know that serpents like to live in cool dark places, well, that's a wall. And maybe you have a small snake that has gotten itself into the cracks of a wall and made himself a little home there. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, this wall's not as helpful as it used to be. I'd rather have my wall 100 yards further out for my sheep or oxen or whatever else he wants the wall for. I'm going to knock this wall down. And in doing so, the snake comes out and bites the guy without him even realizing it. And you can die from the venom of these snakes. I think there are 20-some different kinds of poisonous snakes in Israel. And that's what Solomon has in mind here, is a serpent that will break, uh, that will bite someone who breaks through a wall. You know, perhaps you've heard mice or something similar climbing through the walls of your house. It's just a similar idea. They're looking for a dark, cool place to live, but there's a danger inherent in this, in this situation. And so a fool may be bitten by a snake because he's not even aware that it's there. In verse 10, he gives two more examples. I'm sorry, verse 9. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. How are you hurt by stones? Maybe you drop it on your foot. Maybe you throw your back out. Maybe you're scratched by a very sharp part of that stone that you just broke off. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. Maybe the axe head will fall off. Maybe the splinters from the wood that you're chopping will fly up into your eyes and you're not wearing safety goggles. You know, if you watch this old house, 
It's a little annoying how seriously they take uh, safety on those shows sometimes. It's because they're setting the example for people who are watching at home and probably won't take their advice, but wear goggles, wear ear protection, whatever else. And that's exactly what Solomon has in mind here. The fool is someone who says, ah, nothing bad could happen here. I'm just going to start chopping here. So what, what he's saying in verses 8 and 9 is that everyone is susceptible. <clears throat> These kinds of accidents can happen to anybody, but that the wise are prepared for these situations. In verses 10 through 11, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength to chop the wood or to break the stones, for instance. But wisdom helps one to succeed. In other words, the wise person foresees the evil and says, you know what? If I just use a dull blade, I'm going to be here all day. But if I sharpen this thing, it's going to be a whole lot more effective and a whole lot safer, even though it's sharper, actually. So, wisdom helps him to succeed because he, he sees the evil and he hides himself from it. And the wise are prepared for those snake bites as well. Verse 11, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. I needed to do a little bit of research about this, to be honest. Like, what does it even mean to charm a snake? And I'd forgotten that I've seen this in you know, children's movies and things growing up. But the idea is you have a dangerous, say, a cobra, and it's in a basket in a, you know, a dirt street in <clears throat> the Far East, for instance. Eva, have you ever seen snakes charmed in India? Like all the time? All the time. Okay, so maybe you should tell this part of the, of the, the, the sermon. But the idea is you have a basket with a deadly snake in it, and you take the lid off, and you use some kind of a you know, stick or something to basically hypnotize the snake. Is that the idea? Am I telling this correctly? You use a flute as well to kind of hypnotize, hypnotize them so that they are then able to, you know, be fiddled with. I don't even know why you would do this. That's the thing. Like, what's the point? But, uh, but the idea is that the serpent is very dangerous until it's hypnotized, until it's charmed. And Evidently, the charmer makes a lot of money doing this, I guess, Eva. So like, this is a, your job is to hypnotize snakes for some reason. Just talk to Eva in the lobby afterwards to get more details on this. I really should have talked to you beforehand. But um, there's no financial advantage to the charmer if he's bitten before he gets this venomous snake, this deadly poisonous snake hypnotized with his flute or with his wand or whatever else he's going to use. I'm going to stop there. But all that to say, the wise are prepared for these situations. You get somebody who's good at charming snakes to deal with this snake that just broke out of your wall. Back in verse 8. So, remember that folly is destructive. The fool is destroyed by accidents. Verses 12 through 15, he's destroyed by his own words. Going back to that story I opened with the guy in Japan. Or talking about Japan anyway. He's destroyed by his own words. And his words go from bad to worse in verses 12 and 13. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. The wise person knows how to watch his mouth. But the lips of a fool consume him, destroy him. The beginning of his words is foolishness, and they go from bad to worse. The end of his talk is evil madness. It just goes all downhill from there. And in verses 14 and 15, he doesn't even know what he's talking about which is often the case when you talk to a fool, the person who just doesn't even know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what's going to happen. It's like predicting who the Bears are going to draft next. Like, you don't have any idea what's happening up at Hallis Hall, and neither do they. But 
A fool multiplies words. You can go on and on about it forever. Though no man knows what is to be. You don't know what the future is. You don't know what you're talking about. And who can tell him what will be after him? Somebody predicting the future. You don't know what you're talking about. The toil of a fool wearies him. It's kind of the idea of somebody walking in circles and not even realizing it. He doesn't know how to get to the city. It's kind of like, go out the Juliet Road here, this way, and walk to the city. You can see the city in one direction, and this guy goes the other direction. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He has no idea what he's doing. The foolish person is destroyed by his own words. What we know from other, many other passages in the Bible is that our problem isn't that we say dumb things. It's not that we say hurtful things and harmful things. Our problem isn't our bad words. Our problem is our bad hearts. And what Jesus says in Matthew 12, I think verse 34, is that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your problem isn't that you need to go to Bad Talkers Anonymous and get your bad words taken out of you and stop saying foolish things. Your problem is that the foolishness lives in your heart and that only Jesus can remove it. Only Jesus can atone for the bad things that you do and that you say because of your bad heart. Jesus isn't just concerned with the bad things we say and do and think. Jesus wants to change us from the inside out. And he does that when we repent and believe the gospel. When we repent of our sins, when we say, I am the problem. The problem is not out there, online or in the store or in the streets. The problem is in my heart. And that's repentance. When you see that you are the problem and you ask God to forgive you of it. And you put your faith in Jesus himself. And the fact that he kept God's law and didn't sin one time. And that's why he could pay the perfect price by his death for your sin. And when he rose again, he gave the power to overcome sin forever. So if you have questions about that, we would love to talk to you about that after the service. A foolish person is destroyed by his words. We all have foolishness in our hearts. We need to repent of the way that we talk and of how we walk through our lives. This is why we need Christ. So the foolish person, remember, folly is destructive, even if it's initially celebrated, even if it's initially rewarded. The foolish person is destroyed by accidents. He's not prepared for them. The foolish person is destroyed by his words. They just leak out of him without even trying. And the foolish person is destroyed by his carelessness in verses 16 through 20. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, when you put somebody who's not prepared to lead in position. Have you ever seen that happen? in organizations or in government. Your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. I think probably is saying they've been feasting all night long. And here we come into the four and five o'clock and six o'clock hours of the morning and they're still in the bar partying hard. And these are the guys that you trust to run your company or to run your country. But happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, when he's there for good reason and your princes feast at the proper time. They go to dinner, and then they go back to work. They go to dinner for strength, so they can actually do their job, not so they can have a party. Verse 19 is similar. I think verse 19, you can interpret this in a variety of ways, but looking at it, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, money answers everything. I think this is the drunken cry of these guys who have been partying all night long. They're just, this is their philosophy. This is the philosophy of a fool. Life is a party. 
And that's what you see in verses 16 and 17. They party all night long. They feast all the way into the morning. And they say, all we need is food and wine and money and our lives will be set. And the rest of this book of Ecclesiastes says, no, money doesn't satisfy. That's why I'm interpreting it this way. It's because when you read this passage in light of other passages in Ecclesiastes, you would say, that's not what he said back in chapter 5. So he's got to mean something else here. And that's why I think there should be, personally speaking, you should put quotation marks around verse 19 saying this is a bad philosophy of life. Life is a party. So that's one way that you're destroyed by carelessness, saying life is a party. In other ways, in verse uh, 18, your philosophy is, I'll do it tomorrow. And I literally saw someone wearing a t-shirt that said that a couple days ago. If that's your philosophy of life, you are a fool. I'll do it tomorrow is a bad philosophy of life. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. Hey, look, I'm getting wet because water is falling through my roof. Oh, well, this show's hilarious. And through indolence, which is habitual laziness. People look at you and say, how would you define that person? He is a lazy bum. That person is indolent, is what Solomon would say. Through indolence, the house leaks. Those are two synonymous statements. They're saying the same thing, but it comes from a philosophy that says, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. Today is too good to pass up. I'll have another drink or I'll have another game. In verse 20, he's destroyed by his carelessness by saying, I'm right, he's wrong. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. You know, maybe there's good reason to criticize what's going on. Especially if in verse 16, your king is a child and your rulers are partying all night long and they're not doing their job. Maybe there's a reason to... to Curse the king, so to speak, to curse the rich, to say, to, to give a constructive criticism. But Solomon is saying, watch what you say. Again, going back to what he talked about earlier, the danger of, of being destroyed by your words. Even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. In your bedroom, don't curse the rich. What's your bedroom? It's the most private place in your house. That's where you can let your hair down. It's where when you give a tour of your house, you say, oh, and the bedrooms are over there. And you keep going to the living room and the dining room and your, your hobby room. Your bedroom's the most private place in your house. That's where you can let it all out. No, even in there, be careful. Here's why you should be careful, because you never know who's going to hear what you say and pass it on to somebody else. My parents on their honeymoon overheard, a, a, uh, they were in Hawaii, and through their hotel bathroom wall, they heard someone basically arranging a uh, robbery, essentially is what it was breaking out to. So they called the police, from the other side of the roof, I assume. Uh, so they weren't heard. And, and you know the, the situation went from there. But all that to say, you never know who's listening. And especially in the age of social media, you put something on Facebook or Instagram or whatever the other options are, you're going to be in trouble. One time in uh, college, I had some extra credits. Well, I had some... Uh, I had to take another speech class. My minor was in speech, and so I I had to take another speech class. And the only speech class that fit with my schedule that particular semester was an acting class. So great. You know, I'm never going to be in a play, but I'll take a class on acting. Great class. I enjoyed the the teacher a lot, and several of my coworkers uh, were in the class as well. So that was, was a lot of fun. But in this particular play we were doing, one other of my coworkers and I had signed up together for this one play that we had to do in class. And in, at the end of this play, he had to punch me in the face. 
So we practiced this over and over again, this particular scene. And it always went fine in practice. In front of the whole class of 15 or 20 juniors and seniors, he actually broke my lip. He punched me so hard in front of the whole class. And what happened, though, that, that was fine. Like, it was the end of the play. Somebody hit the lights when that happened, and I was able to walk off and clean up the blood and everything. But then somebody went and told somebody else on campus, hey, Eric Brown got punched in the face in class today by Steve Andrews, who's also a pastor and was, was a, a resident assistant with me. And, uh, well, boy, it just spread like wildfire. I was having people come up to me for days Dude, what happened? I heard you got punched by Steve. And no one knew the context. No one knew it was part of a play that we had practiced it over and over again, even though he had never broken my lip in practice. It actually had great effect in the play. But no one was saying those details. What was happening was a bird of the air was carrying the story and spreading it far and wide. And that was without me even saying a word about it. But what Solomon is guarding you against is that kind of a situation where you get in trouble for something that you say or something that happens to you and you have no control over it. Once it's out, for instance, on Twitter, it's gone. You can do nothing about it besides delete the tweet, but sometimes that's too late, depending on how many followers you have. Even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. Don't curse the rich. Guard your mouth, he's saying, because foolishness is destructive. And again, Jesus came to save us from the foolishness that flows from our hearts. A fool is someone who hates God and hates his ways. That means that a wise person is someone who values what God has said, who listens to what God has said, who views life from God's perspective and pursues wisdom rather than foolishness. And so maybe you're asking, okay, very practically, how do I pursue wisdom as a Christian? And number one, I would say, we talked about this in prayer meeting this morning, fly with the flock. Don't try and live the Christian life alone. You know, if the flock is making a flying V and trading places at the front for the sake of each one of those birds, and you're way off on the side, like, I'll be fine. I'll catch up with you guys eventually. No, you won't be fine. Fly with the flock. Be with the body, as often as you can. Have each other into each other's homes and pray together and read the book, uh, books of the Bible together and read devotional books together and theological books together. So fly with the flock. That's how you walk in wisdom. Again, going back to the book of Proverbs, there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Have lots of people you can go to when you need to make a decision. The second application, though, would be to read Christian biography. Read about what it was like to follow Christ in different times and in different places. But what you realize is even if you're reading about someone living 400 years ago or 50 years ago or 150 years ago, they still have the same sin nature you had and they still deal with the two things you deal with, sin and suffering. How did Christians deal wisely with their own sin and with their own suffering in a different time and a different place? So read Christian biography, and if you need suggestions of those, as you would expect, I have plenty of suggestions for you. Pursue a life of wisdom in a world filled with folly and fools. Pursue God-given wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. James uh, James 1 says, when you ask God for wisdom, he gives to you liberally. 
He wants you to have wisdom, so ask him for it. Clayton's going to come and close uh, the sermon with a prayer for wisdom from a passage in James, and um, and we'll conclude our worship service shortly after that. Having heard that wisdom is better than folly and that wisdom comes from our God, let's read this passage from James and then ask God to grant us this wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray in us that these things would be true of us as a church. Oh God, we thank you that you are the one who gives all wisdom from above, that you are the God of all wisdom, that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a life of perfect wisdom, a a life sown in perfect righteousness, and he has reaped a harvest of great righteousness that is testified, testified to by the gathering of saints here this morning. We pray that we will have this wisdom that comes from above. I pray that we will not be a church that is characterized by division and strife and greed and anger, but that we will be a church that's characterized by love and peace and gratitude, that we will be thankful for the good mercy you have shown us, that we will sow righteousness. Dear Father, we know that the fruits that James talks about are grown in our hearts and in our life by the Holy Spirit in us. We pray that we will be a church characterized by these fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because when these things are in our midst and growing, we know that the Spirit is among us and that we have wisdom. Grant us this wisdom. Grant us this peace, we pray. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.